Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Psalm 9, beginning at verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne, judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name for ever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns for ever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked return to the grave. All the nations that forget God. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. And Heavenly Father, we do want to pray now what we've just sung, that uh, you would make your word our guide and you would work your words in our hearts tonight uh, to change us, to fan into flame our faith, uh, to help us to pray and to reinforce our hope. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down, and uh, as you're sitting down, if you could be turning back in your Bibles to uh, Psalm uh, 9, that's page uh, 546 in the Bibles. We have a a laptop at home which for some reason won't start up. It's a a feature of modern life, I guess, that we, we buy all this technology, and after a while, of course, it stops working. And the technology just sort of freezes on us. We fire it up hoping for something to happen and there's just nothing. In desperation, I guess some of us might even get a screwdriver out and uh, and open up the case hoping to be able to do something about it. I sometimes do that and then think to myself, why? Why have I just done this? Because uh, I've opened the case and, you know, there's just lots of um, incomprehensible electronics in front of me. 
I guess what I'm hoping to find is some sort of little on-off switch you know, that's somehow got mysteriously switched from, off, uh, from, from on to off and I can just sort of push it back again and everything's suddenly going to work. Uh, but sadly, no such switch exists. I reassemble the case and still there's no response. It's a very kind of frustrating thing to go through. But it's a feature of our spiritual lives too. Uh, they too can freeze on us. Especially, I guess, at times of extreme uh, stress or crisis, our spiritual lives can freeze up like our prayers at that time, like an old laptop, refuse to boot up and start. Uh, I think perhaps of a, of a Christian family uh, fleeing the city of Karakosh in Iraq just this last week. We can't, can hardly imagine what it must be like for a family like that, uh, fleeing from such terror. But we can suspect that at times like that it must feel impossible to pray. Under such conditions, faith simply seizes up. It's sort of frozen in fear. We just can't find the right words to express what we want to say. Of course, we don't have to be facing that kind of violence for our prayers to seize up. Perhaps we're facing something else. Perhaps we're just facing the old enemies of sickness and death, the fear of death, the distress and loss of seeing someone close to us go through pain and suffering. We'll know many in our church family going through that even as I speak. Or perhaps there's more of a sort of internal struggle in our lives that's seizing up our spiritual lives and our prayers. Perhaps it's depression or loneliness or some struggle with a sinful pattern of behaviour. And again, in our despair in those moments, as those moments sort of mount up into some sort of crisis, our prayers, like an old laptop, refuse to boot up and start. But the difference to our frozen laptop at home is that the solution to a seized up prayer life is actually right in front of us. It's actually lying in our hands, even as I speak. And it's here in the book of Psalms. Because here in the book of Psalms, we've got 150 God-given prayers to jumpstart or kickstart our prayer lives, both individually and corporately as well. 150 of them. Why so many, you might ask? Uh, And indeed, as we start reading, you might ask other questions too, like, um, why do so many of them seem so alike? Uh, I suppose you might say the same thing of a a set of spanners or a, a bunch of keys, In some ways, they they all look quite similar, maybe even the same, but actually each one is importantly and significantly different. It's very much the same with the Psalms. Each one is designed for specific circumstance and works in a very special way to bring about God's purposes in his people. So we've got Psalm 9 in front of you open, for example. You look at verse 19 of our psalm tonight, so you can see the specific circumstance that gave birth to this psalm. It's actually not that far away, not a million miles away from that situation in modern-day Iraq. Uh, Verse 13, we can see uh, David, the author of this psalm, uh, the king of Israel, being so persecuted by his enemies that he is close to death. Uh, And indeed, as the Lord's anointed, uh, David had many, many enemies. All the, the, the hatred of the world against the Lord is focusing down on him. Uh, So it turns out that quite a few of the Psalms written by David have that kind of setting in mind. 
Uh, But even if you've got a whole lot of psalms that seem quite similar on the surface, they may work in very different ways. Psalm 10, for example, uh, which may well have been joined to this psalm at some point, uh, works by bringing us with the psalmist to sort of pour out our emotions uh, before the Lord, uh, in particular our revulsion at the wickedness of wicked people. But Psalm 9 works quite differently, in quite a surprising way, in fact. I hope we're going to see tonight that this psalm works like this. It works by forcing, by, by getting us to force ourselves to remember and praise the God that des- that's described there in verses 7 and 8. Uh, the Lord who reigns forever, who is enthroned as judge of all the earth, who does and shall rule the whole world with righteousness and justice. That's basically what this psalm is about. It's bringing us to remember him and appeal to him. In other words, David is calling us tonight. He's saying, join with me, join with me in your time of need and in your anguish. And let us appeal together to the Lord who has been, is, and always will be the judge of all the earth. And as we do that, let us look back to the past and give thanks and praise for his justice in the past. And then let us look around and pray for his help in the present. And then we shall even have the confidence to look forward into the future and to pray for complete and everlasting justice. And that's pretty much, in fact, how the psalm divides up. David gets us to look back. That's verses 1 through to 12. He gets us to look around. That's verses 13 through to 18. And he gets us to look forward. That's verses 19 and 20. So let's take those one by one. First of all then, look back with me, says David, and give thanks and praise for past protection. This is verses one through to 12. And look with me first at how David structures this part of his psalm. He begins, you can see, by challenging himself. It's all very much at an individual level. Verses one to two, I will praise you, he says. I will tell, I will be glad. I will sing. Then verses, this is verses three through to 10. He does all of his praising and telling and singing. You know, the content of that is kind of spelled out. And then finally, verses 11 and 12, he calls the whole congregation, all the people to join in, singing God's praises with him. So you can see there's kind of quite a deliberate sequence and process here. You know, David begins with himself. He does his singing and praising. Then he calls the whole congregation to join in with him. And I do wonder whether the reason why David begins with himself in quite this kind of emphatic way, challenging himself to sing and praise, is actually because he doesn't feel like it. He doesn't feel like praising and telling, rejoicing or singing. What he's actually thinking at his time of crisis is initially something quite different. What is going on here, Lord? Something like that. Why me? What did I do? It's just not fair. I've been faithful to you, Lord. Well, you know, more or less. Why have you abandoned me at this time of need? What kind of God are you? And we all feel and think those kinds of things from time to time, don't we? Especially in the moment of loss or suffering or crisis. You might be feeling that even tonight. Now, David could just have poured out those emotions before the Lord, and uh, so could we, if we feel those kinds of things. 
And that is indeed one very good thing to do with feelings like that. And we find many, many examples of that kind of thing across the Psalms. Psalm 10 being just one example, as we'll see next week. But in Psalm 9, David does something quite different. What he does is this. He gets the, the, the part of his mind and heart that is still thinking rightly and rationally to take on those troublesome feelings and emotions. You see, he knows in his head that those feelings can't be quite right. That God can't be quite that way. The problem is he doesn't know that wholeheartedly in the moment of crisis. So as he addresses God at the start of the psalm, he's also in part addressing himself. I wonder if the emphasis goes like this. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Even if I don't feel like it, I'm going to do it. It's a hard thing to do, I think, in the moment of despair. But a good thing. David knows it's a good thing. It's a good thing for us too. It's a little bit like that moment um, which comes to us uh, from time to time when you know you ought to say sorry, but you really don't want to. I don't know if you go through this. This happened to me just last week, in fact. I said something hasty and snapped at someone. And as I was doing that emotionally, I was kind of justifying what I've just said to myself. But rationally, I knew I should say sorry. I just didn't want to. But eventually I did. And I was glad I did. And uh, you might know that experience too. And it's a very similar thing, similar sort of thing going on here. When things go badly wrong in life, emotionally... We're saying, I don't want to praise you, Lord. Look at what's happening to me. How can I praise you? Although rationally, we know we should and that things will be better if we do. And so David praises the Lord. But let's be clear here. David isn't encouraging us to uh, some kind of empty praise here in this psalm. You know, he's not trying to get us to pretend there isn't a problem that everything's really happy and fine. You know, he doesn't want us to, to put on an act in our praise and sort of mindlessly repeat things. You know, I love you, Lord. I praise you. I'm happy, happy, happy. Or anything like that. And it's very interesting. We look at what, what, what David does actually say as he's praising. It's very striking. And we can see that it's the product of some careful thoughts and efforts and meditation. And what effectively David is doing in these verses, this is verses 3 through to 10, is what he's doing is he's thinking of, of, of other occasions where he's faced this kind of crisis and what the Lord has done in those events. Uh, and of course, he's got plenty to choose from. You know, times when uh, some wanted him dead uh, from the surrounding nations, uh, times when some wanted him dead from his own people. Times when some wanted him dead even from his own family. Plenty of times of crisis in the past. And each time he can reflect, verse 3, those enemies, they stumbled and they fell. Each time, in retrospect, he can see the Lord's work, the Lord's hand in what happened, bringing about the right outcome. Verse 4 You have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. Now David's not saying, of course, that uh, the Lord has yet brought about a sort of complete and final justice. But what he has done, we can see, in each of those moments of crisis, 
in David's life is working in that direction, bringing about justice. Uh, What David declares in verses seven and eight uh, is therefore true and remains true and will be true in the future. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He judges the world in righteousness. He governs the people with justice. And therefore it remains true, magnificently, verse nine, that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those are very great words to be true. So that was David, what about us? I, mean, I suppose we could do something, uh, something similar to this. We could look back at our own lives. So this might be a good exercise, actually, to look back in our own lives at moments of crisis that the Lord has brought us through, where in retrospect we can see the Lord's hand at work. We may not have seen it at the time, but we can see it in retrospect. Or perhaps we would do, we'd do something bigger. We could look back in church history at moments of crisis where the Christian faith has been right up against it, almost snuffed out under tyranny or oppression. But the Lord has been faithful. He's kept it alive. He's kept the light shining. He's brought about justice. But much more important for us as Christian readers of this psalm is to look back, for us to look back at one particular victory, one particular victory, the righteous victory of Jesus Christ. David, remember, was that the Lord's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And uh, remember what he's doing? He's looking back and reminding us of the righteous victories that the Lord has has won for him. But that that should then encourage us as Christian readers of this psalm to look back to the victory won for the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord Jesus. Because that was a victory, as we're going to be remembering a little later as we share uh, the Lord's Supper together. It was a, a victory over all evil and even over death itself. And in fact, it's only as we do that that we can really understand what's going on in this psalm. It's only then, I think, that we can properly understand and believe verses 9 and 10, that the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. How can we believe those in the face of death, even of death? Well, only as we look to the victory of the Lord Jesus. Now the parents in northern Iraq watching their children die of thirst in front of them are not going to be able to believe those verses that they're protected by the Lord, you know, that they're safe in the refuge of Jesus. They're not going to be able to realise that they haven't actually been forsaken even though it looks like it and feels like it unless they can remember that particular victory. But this is the magnificent thing, isn't it? If they do remember, then they will be able to stand firm. And they'll be able to say, they'll be able to say, even if, even if our children die and death overwhelms us too, even if uh, we're mutilated, uh, the women raped, the men beheaded, we cannot be defeated. And we can say it too, we can say it too, if we remember, if we remember the Lord Jesus, even if, even if my physical health goes, even if my loved ones are taken, even if I lose my mind, even if I remain lonely, I remain depressed, I remain anxious, 
even if, you know, you fill in the gap, I cannot be defeated in Christ Jesus our Lord. I cannot be defeated in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, most of us, I suspect, we know, know all these things in principle, you know, in theory. Uh, but what the psalm does, as I was saying, is to bring about all of our hearts uh, to know and believe it. It forces us to kind of think it through, if you like, and to, by thinking things through and spelling them out, out aloud, all those recalcitrant, irrational emotions leading us to despair can be brought into line. See, what we're doing as we're reading this psalm is feeding those emotions with the truth and making them healthy again. But what we also learn here is that it's not something to be done alone. It's not done, you know, something to be done in splendid isolation from those around us. No, we're seeing it very clearly here. Well, the, the, the pattern David sets does begin with himself and his own emotions. You know, it begins with the individual. It doesn't end there. He brings all the people to join him in his praise. He's moving from that I will praise, verse 1, to let us praise, verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord together. Which, of course, is precisely the pattern of things that we're trying to follow tonight. Uh, Dealing with the trials of life, we could put it this way, is a corporate activity. It is something we do together. So we meet and we sing praises together. And we declare the name of the Lord among the nations together. Now, let me warn you, everything we've seen so far in this psalm is actually only preparation. Uh, you see, David hasn't even started his prayers and petitions yet. Uh, but it has been helpful preparation, I, I hope. It's helpful looking back. And uh, it's helpful to start on the basis, looking back, being reminded that the Lord does indeed reign forever, that his throne of judgment is established, that he does and will judge the world in righteousness and justice. And having established that firmly in our hearts and minds, all of our hearts and minds, we're in a much better position to appeal to him for help, which is what we find in verses 13 through to 18. Through to 18. Look around, says David. We've looked back. Now look around, says David. Face the current crisis, whatever it may be, and pray for God's help and favor. Now you can see the petition itself is, and why it's so urgent there in verse uh, 13. Uh, let me read it to you again. O oh Lord, Says David, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me from the gates of death. That's the prayer. That's the basic prayer of this psalm. Have mercy and lift me from the gates of death. But I want you to look also at the reason that David gives here in verse 14. Does David ask to be saved because he thinks it's his right to be saved? Does he ask to be saved so that he can get on with life and whatever he was doing uninterrupted no he asks for this so that verse 14 I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion and there rejoice in your salvation in other words uh, David wants in the future to be able to say about the crisis he's facing in the present the kinds of things he's already said about God's uh, salvation in the past he wants to be able to say about his current enemies what he says here in verses 15 to 18, that they have fallen into their own pit, ensnared by their own wickedness, returned to the grave. 
You know, as he's doing this, he's wanting his fear of death at their hands to be replaced by faith in his Lord. And for that faith to grow in confidence till it spills out in confidence in the Lord's salvation. And that's, uh, of course, something that we should want to. And this, this psalm encourages us in that. It's a very beautiful kind of confident trust in the Lord. Uh, whatever may happen, a whatever may happen kind of trust. Sometimes, just occasionally, that trust may come to us uh, relatively easily. Let me give you a, a trivial example from my own experience. Uh, I used to be quite um, scared of flying. Uh, you know, not very scared, but, certainly, but you know, a little bit of a racing heart during takeoff and landing, which I maintain is not entirely irrational. You know, it's one of the most absurd things we do, isn't it, to get into a big metal box and uh, launch ourselves to 10,000 metres at uh, 600 miles per hour. Uh, sit there for several hours, millimetres from certain terrifying death. You know, it's sort of reasonable in some ways to feel a little bit of fear in that situation, I maintain. Uh, but no, actually, interestingly, for some reason, it stopped bothering me uh, so much. And I am able to pray as I start take off or whatever. Whatever happens, Lord, it's all okay. Whatever happens, it's quite a nice feeling. What I haven't quite got yet is actually all of life is like that. It's deeply irrational, in fact, to think that there's anything especially dangerous about air travel. Statistically, you know, it's, it's relatively safe. The truth is, the truth is that all life is like that. All life is dangerous. All life is fragile, ready to break in an instant. So that what I need to do is to spread into all my life that attitude and feeling of whatever happens, Lord, I am safe in your hands. And that's what this psalm helps us with. And if we could let this psalm work on us to do that, I think we would be able to face uh, crises with faith and prayer as David uh, does here. Those crises then would not consume us. But more than that, uh, we'll then be able to lift our eyes, I think, from that crisis uh, beyond them uh, and to begin to pray for more than just help in the present. Because interestingly, that's how David finishes his psalm. He's encouraged, remember, he's encouraged us to look into the past, uh, for us especially to look uh, back to the, the, the victory over death guaranteed by Jesus. Uh, but those victories have encouraged us to have confidence in future victories. And yes, that does help us to pray with confidence for help in whatever we're facing right now. But it should also shift our gaze to the more distant future. And uh, this is indeed how David finishes the psalm. Look ahead. We've looked back. We've looked at the present. Now look ahead, says David, and pray for complete justice. Verses 19 and 20, the final prayer in the psalm. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. I know next to nothing about beauty pageants. You may be pleased to know that. Looks a bit like they're becoming a thing of the past too, which is a good thing. 
fact, uh, pretty much all I know about beauty pageants comes from a film from the year 2000 called Miss Congeniality. Uh, uh, you might have seen it. It's quite a long time ago now, I think. Sandra Bullock plays an undercover special agent disguised as a beauty contestant. It's not a great film <laughs> at all. Uh, but it does have a couple of good lines, and uh, they, these struck me uh, very much. Um, apparently, one of the, the standard questions asked at American beauty pageants is this one, is what's the one thing our society needs? And uh, the standard answer from all the contestants is, well, peace. Uh, except when Sandra Bullock's character tries it. Uh, she slightly forgets herself and her disguise slips a little. Uh, so the question comes to her, what's the one thing our society needs? And she says, harsher punishment for parole violators. <laughs> and uh, of course there are blank looks from all the judges and the audience. Nobody quite knows what to say or think. But then she remembers herself. And, well, peace. And the applause breaks out. Well, peace, of course, is a good thing to want and a good thing to pray for. Uh, but what the Psalms are reminding us all the time is that world peace cannot come without world justice. We're seeing that very strongly here in Psalm uh, 9. They know this very well in Iraq at the moment, of course. The people of the world have forgotten that God is God and they are but human. Now, the people of the world have said, we have set ourselves up as little gods, if you like. And uh, take, we have taken up arms against one another. Hence the violence, hence the lack of peace. Uh, we have taken up arms, ultimately, against the Lord. A, hate, a hatred that is, in fact, expressed against the Lord's anointed, the one who represents the Lord on earth. That's the hatred that David is feeling in this psalm. And, of course, Jesus the Lord's anointed, took the full force of that hatred. That hatred is why there is no peace. But right from the beginning of the book of Psalms, from Psalm 2 in fact, is the promise that the Lord's anointed, God's son, will in the end have complete victory. And he will reestablish the righteous rule of God. That's what David is encouraging us to pray for at the end of this psalm. That's what Jesus wants us to pray for as we pray uh, the Lord's Prayer. And we pray to our Father in heaven, your kingdom come. You see, then there will be peace for those who have taken refuge in the Son. Focus on that future and we have our focus in the right place. And when we find ourselves pray, praying for that future... Uh, then we can be confident that God has indeed wonderfully worked out his purposes for this psalm in our hearts. We uh, still haven't fixed our frozen laptop. Uh, we ordered some recovery discs, but those haven't worked. And uh, I, I don't know whether anything will work. I don't know whether I don't know what the solution is. I don't know if there is a solution. Uh, but I hope we've seen tonight a glimpse at least uh, that there is a solution to a frozen prayer life at the time of crisis. We can expect to feel overwhelmed, to feel at the point of death at some times in, in our lives. Uh, some of us will experience that 
over and over again, just as David did. We can expect that to make faith and prayer difficult, hard work. Uh, But there is help from God. Uh, Help in the Psalms, and uh, as we've seen tonight, in Psalm 9. And the amazing thing is, I think, that he, he even provides the words. Isn't that wonderful? He doesn't just encourage us to pray. He even provides the words for us to think and pray. And as we read them, and as we think them, and as we pray them, we are reminded in this psalm that there is a God, and he is judge of all the earth. Uh, Remember that, and our faith can become unstuck. Remember that, and we can indeed begin to appeal to him for help again. Uh, Remember that, and we can begin to pray for complete justice, not just justice in the present but complete justice and even world peace well let's uh, pray for that together now Heavenly Father we do want to praise you tonight I pray that all that we are doing as we sing together and pray together read your word together uh, take the Lord's Supper in just a moment together will be an expression of praise for the victory that we find in our Lord Jesus Christ, which takes away the sting and threat of death and gives us confidence against any enemy so that we may say, even if our lives are taken away, we are still safe in you. A trust, a confident trust that is a trust in you, whatever happens. So we do pray for help now in times of crisis, but we also want to pray for complete justice in all the world. And we ask these things knowing that it is the will and purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask it in his name.